0: Innovate UK, KTN, connecting for positive change. Welcome to this, the next installment of Maritime Innovation Soundways podcast, where we are exploring hot topics are the talk of those driving innovation in the ports and maritime sector. The maritime sector is responding to global and domestic ground challenges, addressing a transition away from fossil fuels to net zero operations, along with ambitious plans to embrace automation, digitization and striving to improve productivity and safety. We have assembled teams of leading experts in their fields, drawn from our network to join us in discussions related to these grand challenges. In this episode, we'll be exploring how ports are looking to address a growing need to directly supply electricity, sometimes called cold ironing, to resident and visiting vessels, allowing them to switch off their diesel engines whilst at birth or to recharge their energy storage systems and power ancillary equipment. I'm delighted today to be welcoming David and Jonathan, who are sharing the virtual microphone and will bring with them a wealth of experience of delivering poor energy networks across the UK. Gentlemen, so starting, uh, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and give us a snapshot of what it is that you've, uh, you've got, what your installation was. So, Jonathan, as the furthest south, would you like to start and then we'll work our way to the north?
1: Yes, of course. And uh, thank you for the introduction, Mark. Great pleasure to be here. So my name is Jonathan Williams. I run a, a, a company called MSC International, which has been working very closely with Portsmouth International Port who have some very ambitious uh, plans in place and now are actually implementing uh, their shore power system for supplying a a range of vessels that visit Portsmouth.
2: Thank you, Jonathan. And uh, David? Uh, thanks for having me on on the programme. Uh, my name is David Hibbert. I'm from Orkney Marine Services, which is the harbour authority in uh, in the Orkney Islands. Um, uh, we have uh, uh, we control all the, uh, the harbours in the or- islands, which is 29 piers and harbours in the in the authority in area, including Scapa Flow, uh, one of the biggest natural harbours in the world, and uh, and also the the cruise port in in Cutwell Hartston uh the project we we're looking after at the moment is is the or the one we've delivered is the uh, 0.75 megawatt uh, permanent connection for what the resident ferry that it, it, uh, runs buttonford to the mainland plus we operate smaller outlets for a number of vessels up to up to 125 amps at majority of our harbor installations so that's that's where we're coming from thank you chaps
0: thanks for that uh, brief overview so so whilst you're both from different ends of the UK and you've got quite different installations there, there, of course, is one thing that unites you. You are in an exclusive club of being the first and some of the only ones to install commercial shore power systems in the UK, despite this technology being available for, for somewhat over, over a decade. So, so what prompted you to take the plunge at your locations and what helped realise that?
2: I can sort of lead on, on that one. It's certainly a, a collaboration. It's probably led by the Orton Islands Council policies to look to try and reduce the uh, uh, no environmental policies and statements have come come out with uh, to lead to net zero eventually. Um notice that one of the biggest emitters in the area was the uh, is the biggest ferry it runs back and forth the mainland. And and add into that additional problems with uh, we have we've actually too much renewable energy in the islands where a lot of the suppliers are actually being cut off. So we look, tried to find a way that would benefit everyone. Ideally, sell more electricity off the grid to allow uh, more people to generate onto it and g- gain a carbon reduction in the, in the harbour area and, and within the islands and, and try and bring the benefits to all as part of the, of, uh, the council uh, remit. Excellent. Thank you. Jonathan?
1: And am from Portsmouth's end. Um, The real driver actually when they started this journey uh, was was air quality, it wasn't wasn't carbon at that time. Um, The the air quality in Portsmouth is poor and the monitoring systems which the port had installed were showing that certain vessels, certain activities were responsible for very large contributions to uh, that air pollution. So um, that was the original driver. Now, of course, carbon is very much on the agenda uh, and rising rapidly for the maritime sector so so that's an additional driver now to to accelerate their um, their ambitions
0: yeah and of course, Portsmouth is one of the first uh, places in the country to have a clean air zone, as well, and introduce a clean air zone, uh, which has, has followed on, didn't it, from the, the, the port work? It wasn't it wasn't in place before the port work started. Uh,
1: it, yes, it, it, you're absolutely right. It 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 was a so recent recent development. I have to say, it wasn't primarily driven by the port. It was driven by other other sources. But the port is a contributor to the problem, so yes, it's it's um, everyone there's, there's an agenda there, and everyone's having to play their part, basically. Yeah,
0: and both key drivers uh, for both of you: air, air quality and and carbon reduction, and and certainly the the opportunity to encourage uh, more renewables coming onto the grid. Um, yeah, is, uh, is 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 a, is a great thing, but. When we start to look at some of the other developed maritime nations, so when we start to consider places like the United States or Canada, Scandinavia, you notice that they have substantially more installations. So, have you got thoughts on on why they've? What was their incentives um, for those nations? Uh, we're all on the same timeline in terms of the the carbon reduction on the Paris Agreement. So, so, what was it that have you got any insights into to why those nations are are substantially more advanced in their installations?
2: Certainly, on the Amer- the U.S. side, uh, California led the way with the Air Purification Board uh, around that area. And and mandated a number of vessels coming into Long Beach to have, uh, to go to zero emission. And basically, a lot of the regulation we see out today is 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 from that advance that they had there. It's kind of interesting, and in the IE regulation for the ships that the um, the container ships are allowed to to put the cable from from ship to shore, where the regulation is from shore to ship. And that that was kicked off by the container ships coming into Long Beach and taking containers fitting with uh, with power equipment on board and having that fitted to allow them to cold iron when they were in, in Long Beach, which is transferred into the international regulation now. So they were they were first up to mandate these these uh, these changes or what has become sort of international regulation. Um, the the other big driver really is this cost, um, the cost of electricity. And in, in the UK, we have probably the most expensive electricity in Europe. Uh, at the end of the day, that that is the raw the raw product. You sell electrons to two ships, and then then the bills they pay are are what the, the raw material cost is plus the cost of the of the the finance and the the infrastructure. So you know, without you know, we have no carrots and we have no sticks in the UK at the moment. We have no legislation telling them they must do it, and we are not encouraging it by high electricity costs and and pretty limited uh, grant funding for infrastructure. Not not only that, there's grid infrastructure as well. There's, there's issues all over all over the UK on that. I, I know from the fact on on the port of Aberdeen's been trying to look at cold ironing, they just can't get connection.
0: Yeah, no, we're, we're certainly, I think those are things we certainly want to unpick uh, during the, during this, this podcast. Uh, Jonathan, any thoughts on, on Scandinavia particularly? Um,
1: yes, I think um, I would, certainly from our experience, and we've done a lot of work uh, with European ports, actually, that shore power is not cost competitive, period, in any country, <laughs> um, simply because the cost of generating power from fossil fuels is substantially cheaper than the cost of buying electricity from from the grid. Um, So the work we've been doing on the continent, um, the driver there has been very much the fact that ports are publicly owned. there, A bit like Portsmouth, actually. But Portsmouth is something of an exception in the UK, um, um, where most of the ports are privately owned. But on the continent, they're publicly owned. And there's political pressure to install these facilities. the, so they're doing it uh, at some considerable expense. The difficulty is persuading the vessel operators to use the shore power facilities. We even have situations in some ports where, where vessel operators are mandated to connect the shore power, but they still operate their engines. They just don't, they, they don't buy any power through the shore power connection, completely defeating the purpose of the investment. So this is a big problem. And um, there are really only two solutions. Um, One is that you make it mandatory, or you prohibit the running of fossil fuel uh, or or carbon and pollution-emitting engines in port, or you uh, introduce fiscal instruments which make shore power competitive. And if you don't don't do either of those, you're not going to get a widespread take-up of shore power.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, certainly from the the studies we've done over the last couple of years, and and talking with uh, owners like you and operators like yourselves, you know, these are big substantive capital projects when you're introducing new infrastructure. So you you need good access to investment and funding to make them a, a reality, and that's certainly something that unifies most of, or if not all of, the early adopters. Um, is that uh, they've received a fair slug of of public and private money coming into them? So, so have you got any thoughts on on how responsive um, are the investors and the private finance bodies? How how aware and alert are they to this opportunity? And and certainly specifically on the public funding element how crucial are you do you view that is is there enough of it? Is it accessible um, and, and do we need that then for the foreseeable future? do we need an element of public funding moving into this in the absence of legislation and and that mandate you mentioned
2: certainly I think there be there is no chance of uh, being commercial without without grant funding incentives um, i mean uh, we we sell the electricity at cost to the to the, the the ferry companies um which we is negotiated on a you know on a very large on a, on a local government footing um and we just get a return out of a stand, a, a charge that uh, it just takes in the, the minimum just to cover the cost of of the of the infrastructure we put in with, Notwithstanding the grant funding, which is about eighty percent of that, and it still just about breaks even on on cost of of uh, running marine gas oil to to generate power so so without uh significant funding or or uh, mandating that through some sort of legislation or carbon charge or or whatever it was pollution charge, I think there's going to be quite some difficulty sort of persuading shippers to uh to take take this up uh, n- not only that is from the, but from the the harbor point of view that uh, ships move move on without if they're non-resident uh, they they can they, you you may invest you know several millions in in infrastructure and the the ships that had agreed to use it next thing they, they move on and and you're you're left with a stranded uh, stranded investment so it, it's quite quite a difficult uh, business case to put forward that's uh, the way it is at the moment yeah. So, so
0: David, just picking up on
2: that point then, do you, do you see it as perhaps lending itself more to where
0: you have a regular fixed travel uh, or, or movement? So, for example, a ferry as opposed to perhaps looking then at, at, at cargo movements, as you say, that can frequently move from port to port. And take their business elsewhere, depending on where demand is.
2: So certainly, you can get all the stakeholders together much more easily when you're using on a, on a ferry service. Now, ferry service tend to get dedicate ships to routes for slightly longer terms, than you know, like the cargo ships in the in the oil port here. We see you know different ships moving, and barely the same one comes back twice. But you know, with the the ferry traffic it's you no know, it's it's on a timetable so and they they tend to be here for maybe decades if, if through the through the life so certainly working with the uh, if you, you know the ship owner the, the port the harbor operator and and also you know the electricity supply company you know to get things moving is it's quite essential in the core that that to uh, move these sort of projects forward
1: what well, i would I would add to that i mean i think i agree with everything. Been said. Um, the only thing I would add, though, looking further ahead, is that um, vessel operators are thinking to themselves that because their assets are very long-life assets, they need to they need to plan for, plan for the future. And under rapidly evolving IMO regulations, there is a growing body of thinking within certainly the vessel operators that we talk to coming into that are coming into Portsmouth is that they are starting to invest in onboard shore power facilities because they can see the writing on the wall, really. Um, and the carbon emissions that, that vessels emit when they're at birth do contribute to their overall uh, carbon weighting. So, so there are drivers now starting to push operators to invest. However, that puts the onus in on the ports to provide the facilities which those vessels will need and there's no, there's, 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 the, the ports have to find that very substantial uh, capital investment themselves. So, so that's really where the big problem um, lies, I think. Coupled with the fact that, that for certainly for some operators, they will be they will need to be pushed before they will use these facilities. So, um, I think things are changing, but they are. It's all a little bit. It's a little bit unstructured, I would say, at the moment. A little bit. Um, unstrategic and certainly from a from a a UK PLC perspective it's it's you know it's it's a little bit fragmented I would say
0: yeah talking to a couple of different uh, port operators who have expressed a a strong interest in taking forward some form of of on-site shore power system a lot of their uh, a lot of their concerns relate to uh, the availability of the uh, of energy, uh, the the cost of obviously bringing obviously the connections in, but but also the availability, the intermittency, uh, other demands from elsewhere and, and local areas. Um, so so in an area where there is possibly constraint to the amount of electricity that's available, to the cabling and and solution coming in and the the competitive competition out, or the competition out there for that electricity what sort of what are your thoughts in terms of the role therefore for for energy storage or energy di- sub-distribution systems what are your thoughts there John, jonathan perhaps uh for your experiences you're right
1: mark um that's very much where the work we've been doing in portsmouth has has, has been focused because portsmouth is a very good example of a port that is very constrained in terms of its its access to sort of power levels that um, they will need from the local distribution network operator Um, so we have the the projects that we've been doing have included some battery storage a little prototype battery storage system to um, essentially to demonstrate how port can operate these kind of facilities to optimize the way that they manage their energy resources it's a new area for the port, and I think don't think we should underestimate the challenge for ports in becoming adept at doing this uh, but the the, the role of, of battery storage is now becoming very very clear and very critical in our view um, not only because it means that the the port can operate with us with a with a reduced requirement for Power rating from the from the local network, but also uh, because they can optimize when they buy that power within reason, uh, and therefore avoid having to buy power when prices are very high, um, and instead buy it when prices are lower. So they can reduce the cost of the average cost of electricity that they need to supply to their visiting vessels. so i think there is there is a really crucial role for storage but then of course we're in competition with all the other demands on storage and the fact that storage is still relatively expensive
2: david are you? yes yeah, so i mean um we, we've experimented in a number a number of things as part of a surf and turf project we have a a, a fuel cell unit uh, running on hydrogen in kirtwell harbour area that's connected to the one of the, uh, the three of the Internet island ferries berths there found that the use of that was um there was problems on the on the generation side of the of the hydrogen and which was on one of the outer islands. Um but the the kit worked very effectively and from what it did. Um yeah. but the problem the hydrogen became quite more expensive than was originally envisaged. It was you know, the the cost went up, the reliability wasn't quite where it should have been. So there there's quite a bit of work to to do on that. But I think the key part of the, that whole project idea was the, the hydrogen was generated from curtailed energy. That's when renewables were told to switch off because there was too much electricity being generated. As, as you see, more and more uh, renewables or wind farms and renewables coming onto the grid. We can see that becoming a, a problem nationally and uh, looking for this thing called demand side management where you know you, you, you price electricity down and up depending on demand and you can you can either turn that into hydrogen put it in the battery storage use it, all sorts of other mechanisms for for storing that now no doubt there'll be grid scale solutions coming through to that being pump storage and whether that feeds through to your particular el- electricity supplier um Apart from that, we 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 don't have any th- views on 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 sales or batteries in the harbour area. I know some of the renew- renewables projects are using batteries to smooth out uh, hydrogen production uh, in uh, other projects there, which I, I think is being quite successful. But but at this point, the the cost benefit of batteries versus versus the grid is probably quite prohibitive at the moment. Uh, and what we what we do with the, the large you know the large operator the, they they're on a half hourly tariff which is fixed so they they can then choose if they want to, to use the, the electricity from us which is obviously cheapest in the off peak time and most punitive, and in, in the early evening, which actually coincides for them is when they're not actually in on the berth anyway. So they can, by the by the way they're operating their schedule, they probably are uh, availing themselves of the of the best possible tariffs to be able to use. So, um, so that there is two ways of looking at that. If if you can can consume at the cheap at cheaper price times. Good for you and if if you can't, you can either you can either you know suck up the the higher charges or or look at some storage systems from from on an individual basis well so no if you're a, a ship with a, possibly some hybridisation on it, you can choose to use your your internal batteries if you wish at that particular timing of the day and and top up your systems through the night if you're still alongside or there has a lot of flexibility. So also see from the from the ship owner point of view they have some you know their this hybridization is making some traction into the into the ship owner side as well, so they'll have that flexibility so they can maybe take down megawatts through that the lowest peak the lowest pricing time through the night and and disconnect at the peak time so that there is quite a flexibility between what the what the, the harbor operator and what the ship owner is looking at so that ideally they, they need to be connected um so you need to do this together to 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 get the best solution here
0: yeah. no it's it's really interesting to hear from both of you because uh, you you both represent uh, you know certainly two of the four running technologies in terms of battery storage and the use of hydrogen in fuel cells they're so certainly the from our experience, that the two uh, you know, front-running technologies that are being developed at the moment. Uh, so it is great to hear more on, on those. Um, you, you sort of lead me then into my sort of final question, and then sort of the final thing I wanted to to explore with you was uh, the government has made fairly substantive investments and and certainly in recent decades it's the biggest investments that the maritime sector has seen uh, into R&D projects and, and demonstrators through their the The Department for Transport's two hundred six million pound UK shore program, uh, and I know that you've both benefited to some degree from from those uh, that so far. Uh, how do you feel that's that's gone so far? We're coming up to the last. Um, or that we're expecting the last round, uh, the, the round four to come out later this year. What would your advice be to to, to DFT when thinking about what to invest in next? What sort of projects should they be encouraging forward? How do you feel the, the investments so far have, have, have gone? Uh, I say, what would you be looking for as as options for, for, for Clean Maritime round four?
1: Well, that's a very very big question there, uh, Mark. I think um, what are the barriers, I suppose, which need to be addressed? And um, one of the well one observation would be that um, the time scale for submitting proposals for um, support under these programs has has in the past been too short, in my opinion. and um, so I don't think um I don't think it's been, there's been enough forward thinking. And this may be a treasury you know, constraint on DFT, uh, it probably is, um, but it has the effect therefore of, of militating against long-term strategic planning of a program which can evolve over time. So that's a pity, but having said that, some very good work has been done. I don't want to, to suggest otherwise. Um, but the thing which I think really needs to be recognized as well is that some of the barriers um, are uncertainties which are in the government's gift to start to address so uh, for example it's very unclear at the moment when we when we were studying the role of the port supplying balancing services back to the grid which is one of the spin-off benefits from having storage in the port it's extremely hard to make a business case because there is so little certainty on how those balancing services are going to be procured. They're all done by auction, basically. And, we anticip- and there's an anticipation that, that the market will change very quickly over the coming years as, as generation becomes more intermittent and so on. So, what that means for investors is a lot of question marks. And um, we need to really to start to address that uncertainty in order to allow those kinds of investments to go forward with greater greater confidence, in my opinion. Yeah. And
0: David, any further thoughts for
2: Um yeah, yeah. I, w- I would just like to say about you know, the time scale it's really really key on, on this as I think Jonathan was pointing out there's you no know, the infrastructure takes years to put in place. Um we find that uh, you know, with a with a shortage of grid infrastructure to to take your you know, your your electrons to your key side. Yeah. So, no, you, you apply for, a, you know, a 9-12 megawatt uh, connection, uh, particularly in an area which we is a relatively, relatively big. That You're probably looking at 5 to 10 years before, you know, the infrastructure of the national grid as part of their, their you know, they have their strategic plans of wiring up, you know, taking power from wind farms, nuclear power stations, you know, waving tidal all over the country and how, how they connect all that up. And and these are high levels of power are part of that. So, so getting a solution in one to two years out of that when there's there's no backbone infrastructure there is just probably not going to happen. So that kind of pushes you down. If you have to deliver, you have to do something local, and and trying to do something with, with you know what you can produce locally is quite difficult. If you got if you got land, you got renewables, you got maybe a wind, you might be have have be able to put up some solar panels or do do something locally. But um, doing something nationally is is very very difficult in in short time frame. And particularly getting getting all the stakeholders on board with that is is, is challenging. You know that it all becomes you know it, it goes into shipbuilding plans, ship modification plans, planning for key sides. You know what what sort of ships you're 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 going to take on your best planning. So it it's really you know this is like you probably you need it. This needs to fit into a five year plan as a minimum. So, uh, like the so a lot of the funding calls have been one two years, which is 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 really missing the mark. Apart from research work, it, it does very well in that. But in fact, to de- deliver a project of this sort of scale in two years, is is a big ask.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it, uh you're right. It, uh, it certainly in terms of driving forward this agenda, certainly there's a a place there for bringing together some of these strategies these uh these uh ship shipbuild- the uk shipbuilding strategy bringing together the uh, the uk energy networks uh, strategy all together so, so so yeah no, a big piece of activity there to stitch that lot uh together and get those departments engaged well Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, David and Jonathan, for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the, the time to share your your insights and uh, and learning from the projects you've delivered uh, down at Portsmouth and, and up at Orkney. So, so thank you again for, for, for joining me today. And thank you, for uh, listeners, for for joining us. And uh, do check out the rest of the podcasts uh, in this series. And, uh, yeah, thank you again for, for joining us all. Innovate UK KTN. Connecting for positive change.